And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street... The Fluffernutter. That didn't really work out, did it? Should we do that again? I want to stop. Well, we can go from here. Okay. Welcome to Fluffernutter. There's nobody to embarrass ourselves in front of this time. Well, other than the people who ever listen to this, then they'll go, gosh, they can't even manage their own intro anymore. No, what that means, what that means is that we do not have a prepackaged, pre-recorded intro that we just cue, cue intro and then go on. Every podcast is fresh from the market. There's nothing <laughs> predetermined, nothing pre-recorded, nothing can. See, we so can't even get that part right. <laughs> can't we even get, get that, that part right. Either. Let's just start. Okay, let's start. Excuse me? I said, let's just start. Okay. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. This, this, this one is going to be a big hit. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about your excellent anthology, Meeting Infinity. Not by way just of plugging it, which of course we don't do, but I actually had a question about it. Okay. In the past, you've done a series of what you call the Infinity Project. And I'm not sure I understand the theme of each of the, what, now four anthologies in the series. Yep. But the others seem to deal with classic themes, space exploration, moving up, moving into the solar system. I, actually, I should ask you to do this. Explain what the themes are of the first three volumes of the Infinity okay. Project. Okay, I mean, I, I guess... What I'd have to first admit is that the Infinity Project is a retrospective construct, not a deliberate plan. That okay. when the way it started was, I was asked to edit a just a, a an anthology of current hard science fiction, and Engineering Infinity wow. was really just a if you like a bit of a survey book on contemporary hard science fiction, and I think it works very well like that. It's you know that's why you get people like Hani Ryan Yemi and Gwyneth Jones and Peter Watts and whoever else in the right. book, right? Yeah. And then I was like, well, hang on, people seem to have liked that. Let's do another one. And then you're like, oh, you mean like a sequel book? And then I was like, okay. And so we did, well, I did Edge of Infinity, and that was really looking around and going, well, okay, what? I felt like hard science fiction is such a core part of science fiction itself that. What is the next major core thing that I could see to look at? And to some degree, the Infinity Project is a series of books in exploring the modern core of science fiction. Yeah. So, Edge of Infinity uh-huh. was very much a let's look at the m- near to mid future set within our purely within the solar system at a pre-star flight stage. Because if you like that, that would be uh-huh. a point. I thought, well, having done that, uh, and yeah, that w- went fairly well. It was like, well, what then makes sense? I mean, if you've got this thing where you're in the solar system and it's fully uh, explored, and given that Engineering Infinity, to some degree, did feature uh, a number of stories that dealt with distant space, I thought, well, the next obvious thing would be to do the, ah. you know, getting off Earth. And that was what Reach for Infinity was. It was like, it was supposed to be that set in that period in any timeline where we'd worked out technically how to do it, but we hadn't got off the planet. And then having got that, that trio, if you like, that kind of fitted, where you had get off the planet, be off the planet, leave the star system. It was like, well, what else would, would you do that would fit? And the next thing I began to think, well, oh, okay, we've talked about what we might encounter when we leave the planet. Let's now talk about what happens to us when we do so. How do we have to physically change ourselves to live in the future? And to some degree, I was inspired in this by a Tom Kidd painting that resonated for me many years ago. Yeah, yeah. Back when Gardner Dozois edited the, his very first m- monumental year's best science fiction for Blue Jay Books, uh, Blue Jay ran on the cover of the first one. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was the first one. Uh, a, p- a piece by Tom Kid-, Kid that showed a mechanized cyborg, I guess, of some kind, sitting on a moon, looking out across the solar system. And, he was, and obviously it was exposed to the raw vacuum. And it was an illustration, I believe, for one of uh, Bruce Sterling's Shaper Mechanist stories, 
which are very much about how, you know a, the, the cyberpunk punk version of how you restructure and change yourself. And I guess at one point I thought Meeting Infinity might more look at, if you like, biopunk, that whole kind of street hacking bodies to, to adapt to the future. And there's a very small yeah. element in it, but it kind of grew beyond that into a much more sort of uh, broad topic about how you look at how do we change our minds, how do we change our bodies, how will we change then how we interact with the world. If you're going to live on, I mean, I keep saying it here, you said last week, every time I talk about Mars, I talk about it as being Nevada, but it really wants to kill you. Well, I mean, yeah. is it easier to, ch to change us to be more impervious to radiation than it is to change Mars to shield us from, you know, um, from radiation. And also, there's something very romantic about the image from that uh, Tom Kidd painting. The idea, I mean, when we, see uh, when we see science fiction stories, or science fiction films, oh. and you see spaceships zooming around, when you see uh, you know, images in vacuum, there's an element of like being, you want to be there physically to experience it. But you can't, because mm. you would die instantly. If you change your body, maybe you could. Maybe you could be physically in space. And how incredible would that be? And then you've got that, that toss-away line of uh, Roy Batty's in um, Blade Runner about having seen oh. you know, the, the, the starships, uh, you know, a flame off the arm of Orion or something. And it implies sort of... Yeah, off yeah. the shoulder of Orion. Orion yeah. All that kind of thing, which, which imp implies some kind of physical interaction with these science fictional things. And that's what sort of drew me to it. That's what the book was supposed to, to, to present to some degree. And some of the stories do deal with space exploration, but some deal with modifications that people simply choose to uh, endure or subject themselves to, sometimes recreationally. I mean, I'm not spoiling anything, I don't think, to say that the opening story uh, is a story by James S.A. Corey, which involves a young man who decides to be essentially a manta ray in the ocean. Yeah. Um, because his society does things like that. Here's my thing. Here's my question about that, though. The first first volume in that series, called Engineering Infinity, is a kind of kind of a classic science fiction title in the sense that engineering means we will do something to the environment. We will change things. We will build machines. We will ultimately engineer a planet. We will do terraforming and that sort of thing. So the dichotomy which you've identified in this series, which becomes very clear in the most recent volume meeting infinity, is one that I've, I've been fascinated about for a long time. And it's one I can trace back. I, I'm going to do this no matter what anybody does to me if I say it. I'm going to trace it back to Freud. <laughs> um, yes, Dad. Yeah. Okay, Freud wrote an essay. I don't even know where it was. I mean, it's a paper somewhere. And an anthropologist picked this up. I actually gave this, outlined some of these ideas in an academic paper once. He, just, he made a distinction between what he called alloplastic adaptations and autoplastic. Plastic meaning change, forming, shaping, and so forth. Alloplastic is where you change that which is outside you. You architecture is alloplastic adaptation. You make, it's, it's, it's like burning hot in Perth now, and so you have air conditioning. That's yeah. changing your environment to make it. Autoplastic adaptations, which I think uh, was picked up by anthropologists, and they would use examples of tribes that will mutilate themselves. Actually, another example from Australia had to do with uh, Aborigine sub-incision. The <laughs> idea that you change yourself because somehow that will make you better suited for your environment. So science fiction has dealt with both of those things. Terraforming is the extreme form of alloplastic adaptation. And the autoplastic, changing yourself, it's fascinating because it's it's certainly there in things like Fred Pohl's Man Plus. Um, its classic golden age expression was probably Clifford Simak's story Desertion, which came out in, what, 1941 or something, and mm. became part of... And what got me interested in, in this, and by the way, the academic paper where I talked about this, another academic, a very distinguished person, even slightly older than myself, followed me by saying... That's a very interesting idea. Of course, all those have been completely discredited in anthropology, but I'm glad <laughs> To which I responded, I don't care. It's, it's, it's fun to talk about science fiction this way. That's right, and it um, is. So, so why was desertion so popular? Desertion is a story about a, a sort of schlumpy guy who's not attractive. He's not, 
He's got aches and pains. Uh, he's, he's, he's got no friend except his dog. And the two of them undergo this sort of metamorphosis which enables them to survive on the surface of Jupiter and try to find out why all the other people who have been sent through this process have never returned and never re- responded. And the reason, it turns out, of course, is that in his new form, he not only can talk to his old friend, the dog, but he's, he finds these sort of methane storms on Jupiter, just wonderful, cool breezes, and he's finally found an environment. And I, 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 sus- I, I don't suspect this, but I wonder if the alienation that science fiction fans may have always felt, we can't belong in this world, was somehow addressed by that. I, I think it is. I think it's, it's also a way of engaging with your dreams. I mean, you sit there and you dream of the future. How do you engage with it? How do you physically adapt to it? How do you get to be a part of it? And I mean, if, and, you, know, if you are a, a standard, frail, kind of science fiction-y reader kind of person, mm-hmm. you know, the fact is you're unlikely to get on a very fast plane, never mind go to Mars or anywhere else. You're unlikely, but but if you could change yourself, I mean, to some degree, this also ties in with the whole kind of upload and then rebuild yourself on the other end kind of thing you get with where with uh, Greg Egan, where you know you reduce yourself to your core essence, and it also then links across to what he does in terms of questioning the whole what it is to be human kind of a thing in stories like Learning to Be Me and Reasons to Be Cheerful, um, in a really kind of interesting way. But I think. We've always wanted to see how we could change ourselves. It's always been there. But somewhere, I think, around the cyberpunk era, it became more radicalized. And we began to look at more profound ways of physically changing ourselves, rebuilding ourselves into different things. That's where, where the, the whole biopunk thing began to kick up, too. Uh, and, that, and then you get into these stories you know, like that culminated, well, not culminated, but it was recently represented by something like, say, Pat Cadigan's Hugo Award-winning The Girl, the girl, the girl Thing Who Went Out for Sushi. Which yeah. is really about a character who wants to physically change herself completely to join a group out, who are out there working around uh, Neptune, I think it was, or something, or Jupiter. And, and this, I think, I, th- I think biopunk might be a, 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 a good sort of marginalizing point from the old way of viewing this to the to, to the new way of viewing this, because it seems to me that when you talk about uh, the girl thing who went out for sushi, or when you talk about some of the transformations. Uh, that take place in some of the stories in Meeting Infinity. These are matters of choice. These are ways of designing our bodies to fit with these environments. As you said with that Thomas Kidd illustration, you know, we want to be able to see the surface of of, of, of Io or Europa, but we can't. We no. can only do it mediated. So, so that's a way of doing that. But um, in, the, in the earlier hard science fiction mode, there were two ways that it seems to me human transformations occurred. One is that you had to do it in order to survive an environment, as in desertion, as in Fred Pohl's Man Plus, as in Cordwainer Smith's Scanners Live in Vain. All kinds of stories where we don't necessarily want to do this, but we've got to because that's the only way we can survive. The other way you got transformed in earlier science fiction was somebody did it to you. Aliens did it. Puppet masters did it. Pod people did it. Body snatchers. You know, so so it, it wasn't a matter of your choice. What you're talking about with, with the post-biopunk, and if I'm the first one to say post-biopunk, that sucker is copyrighted as of now. Um, <laughs> but the post-biopunk, okay. it's, 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 it's a choice we make. It becomes a choice we make, like the clothes we wear or the uh, minimal body modifications we already have with piercings and earphones and so forth and so on. So when did it shift from being something that happened to you or something that needed to happen to you to something that was a matter of style? The 1980s. I think you're right. I think this is when style took over science fiction. But but okay, but but for a particular reason and not for a stylistic one, for a scientific one. Oh, we lost faith in alien life. We 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 learned more and more about the solar system. We learned more and more about nearby uh, stars as we continue to do to this day. And I think the 80s were also, amongst other things, a tipping point in scientific knowledge when we began to think the, 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 that whole sort of classic idea that you, know, you went into the, you, you went to the stars, you encountered a you know a bazaar of alien life forms, whatever else. We lost mm-hmm. faith in the existence of the other to some degree, and so we had to become our own other. Hmm. We had to invade ourselves. 
in these stories, you know, to create the, the change the kind of tales we're de- dealing with. We don't believe that there actually are puppet masters out there who are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that in 1940 you absolutely concretely believed it. That's absurd. What I'm saying is it was easier to not rule it out. You know, you were cr- cr- you know, crafting adventure stories on a basically a, ta- a blank ca- canvas. I mean, yes, you had images of stars, but everything was basically fictionalized, and the, the level of detailed understanding was comparatively low. Now, we've got a much greater idea and a much cl- clearer thought and, on, on what we think about the existence of extraterrestrial life. And I think that's, that's what happened. I think in the 80s we lost faith in the idea and we began to change. Okay, I, I, I can certainly in the 80s, certainly with the cyberpunk and the various punk movements that derive from it, there was fairly little in the way of planetary exploration. Most of it was focused on Earth. Most of it was focused on psychological and, 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 and neurological changes in ourselves. I wonder if another thing, losing faith in the alien, maybe uh, accompanying that was the fact that the bodily transformations that we used to ascribe to aliens, I mean, the classic body snatcher, puppet masters kind of thing, uh, the mind control thing, uh, the shape-changing thing like in Hal Clement's Needle, were taken over by supernatural fiction. To some extent, you, you were no longer transformed into a mindless automaton by aliens, but you can be turned into a zombie. You can be turned into a vampire. You can be turned into one of a thousand different variations on vampires that basically function in terms of uh, kind of organizational capability the way aliens used to. What I'm thinking about when I say that is a series uh, that Guillermo del Toro was doing on television now, and I don't know if you're getting it in Australia or not, called The Strain, which is essentially a vampire story. It's based on his novels. Uh, but the vampires are... That's, that's just like hand-waving. Essentially, this is a way to turn you into something ugly and disgusting because science fiction no longer wants to turn you into something ugly and disgusting. So we have to have supernatural fiction filling the gap. Is it because, though, we've actually made a transition from fear of the other in these kind of stories, the aliens, to fear of the real-world future a little bit? I mean, the whole zombie kind of thing is really very dystopian. I mean, it may be comical, it may be ridiculous, it might be absurd, but it's also dystopian. Yeah. It, I mean, and, and it's generally set in that kind of a sense. It's like, you know, the zombie apocalypse is coming. Tomorrow is terrible. We're going to be reduced from act, you know, from functioning active people into uh, hollowed out monstrous drones by, by the world around us. Because there's, yeah, I there's rarely an actual I, co- you know, cause for it. It just happens. Well, that's why I don't buy the dystopian thing. I mean, it's, it's a, a lot of critics, a lot of TV and movie critics talk about zombie, walking dead sorts of things as dystopian. I, they're post-apocalyptic, and they're clearly not nice places to live, uh, as one of the characters actually says in, uh, in the Gregory Benford story, which is in uh, Meeting in Penny, one of the characters says, there's not a speck of nice about this place. And that's pretty much what zombie land is. But it's not, it's not a repressive government. It's not something you've gotten into by bad policy decisions. It's not a dictatorship. It's not Marxist. It's not fascist. It's just, it's just basically everything screwed up. Well, I mean, so well, I, I, the, the Benford story is different, though. I mean, you've got to be careful. I mean, this is a story called Aspects. And yeah. it is unusual in the sense that it is the first um, galactic center story that he's written in many, many years. Mm. And it is a direct sequel follow on to Great Sky River, which was a 1987 yeah. Galactic Center novel. And I think it has that, that, the mindset of the, of the 80s in it. Um, well, it, it, it deals with one of the um, divisions which seemed to be more central to 80s science fiction than it is now. It may have been that the, the various punk movements changes, in that there was this sense of a division in the universe between mech civilizations and organic civilizations. And the whole, the whole Galactic Center saga is about that. It's about gradually discovering that. And, 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 and Bruce Sterling began his career with essentially the same thing, shapers versus mechanists. Yeah. Um, so, so to some extent, that division no longer is, is, is a schism in, in, in modern fiction. It's, it's, we're both. You know, we're both organic and mech. There's not, there's not one or the other. 
Um, but the, the, the reason I quoted that particular line was simply because it's there's a kind of old-fashioned hominess to a lot of Benjamin's fiction, partly because he grew up reading, you know, Faulkner and and Fitzgerald and, and, and the modernists that that humanizes that in a way that a lot of more contemporary fiction doesn't. But that's kind of a side side issue. The point I'm getting at is that, um, in, in terms of your comment about dystopia, is that um, dystopias, when you're talking about these kind of hybrid, uh, there's another um, phrase, nubrid, I think, is the phrase that's used in, a, in the John Barnes story, mm. where people are partly re-engineered and partly, you know, genetic, uh, that's, that's, that's all us now. What used to be us versus them is now just us. The other, as you said, is incorporated into what we can become. Yeah, and, and in fact, you can even look at something like the Benford as an example where we've built the other because there is no other. Right, exactly. Well, that's the other. That's, we're, we're getting really confused in our use of the word other. And there's well, the I mean, other no, no, I think, I think we, we, sh- we have to be very careful. We've got a very clear barrier. It's very simple. It's other than the physical humans, other than us, that we oh, encounter. Okay. But that's, 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 that's a huge, it's a huge shift in science fiction if that's what's happened. Hmm. Because the other at one time meant aliens. Yeah. And if your thesis is right, we've lost faith in aliens. The other other, going back to Carl Chopek, <laughs> was, was initially robots or organic robots or androids or artificial intelligences, uh, the kind of thing which, uh, you know, sort of begins to blend into uh, environments in the sense of uh, things like I have no mouth and I must scream, yep. or even the Terminator where we build something that then turns against us. Now, that's that's a mechanized version of the old Frankenstein. But what yes. it does, as you pointed out, is it wipes out the presence of alien life at all. It wipes out the necessity of alien life for science fiction. Yes, it does. Well, as I say, you, and, and they, if you want to keep having those kind of stories, you know, particularly since we, we now are in an era where... Okay, I think one thing that confuses some observers is that older science fiction continues on unchanged around various streams within it. You know, there's a vast array of science fiction being written. The, there is science fiction being written today that is scarcely influenced by the 80s, the 90s, or the 2000s, and could just as easily have been written in the 60s, or the 50s, or the 40s. And that will always be the case. And, you know, we, we now live in an era where basically I would say, you know, something like space opera has now stopped being science fiction. We had the conversation with Sam Robinson, I think he's right. Space opera has now drifted from science fiction to being epic fantasy. Which doesn't make it bad or, or less less valuable, but that's kind of what it is. So look at this. But whilst the change, the, the, you know, these changes in attitudes have happened, the changes in scientific knowledge have happened, the kind of stories we want to tell are still sort of the same. How, how, how do I get out of bed every day? How do I encounter the world? How am I changed by the world? How am I going to live in that world? What what you know, what is out there? And so you have to build your own characters to encounter that. And that's where these forms of the other ha- come. And sometimes, I mean, like, if you like one of the logical outflows, it's in the book a little bit, is where, you know, you, um, you start to change yourself to better deal with the future and what you change into becomes the other. It's like, again, if you look at Pat Cadigan's story from Edge of Infinity, uh, the girl thing who went out for sushi, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're starting to have this dichotomy, and it's, it, it exists in science fiction for you know, for a long time, between future humans and past humans, between shapers and mechanists. But you know, and, you know, sort yeah. of, you know, we've now changed ourselves; we've become the other. So now you have various iterations of other to in- interact with. You've got post-humans, and you have right. artificial intelligences. All this thing. We're beginning to fill out the universe to compensate for the fact that the kind of alien life that we saw you see even in something as recent as say uh john scalzi's uh series old man's yeah. war you know where, where you go out and you encounter a panoply of aliens not going to happen or seems spectacularly unlikely to happen so you need something else this is what it is i think another thing that happened in the probably even before the 80s that that began to shift this um was the notion that the other I mean, I'm thinking now of writers of, of, of reinventing the idea of the other or rediscovering the idea of the other in stories like what is I've become convinced is one of the most significant alien contact stories in all of science fiction of the latter half of the 20th century, which is Tip Tree's The Women Men Don't See, mm-hmm. 
because there are aliens in that. The aliens in that are placeholders. They're not significant. I mean, Tiptree was not interested at all in letting you know what the aliens were like. In fact, the story depends on your not knowing what the aliens are like. The story depends on the fact that the women in the story are so alienated from what they call the world machine that the men have constructed around them that they'd rather go off of these completely unknowable aliens than go back to their you know, boring life. So in other words, we began to recognize with the aid of feminist writers, with the aid of some gay writers, with the aid of some, aid of some non-white writers, I mean, we're, we're, we're surrounded by aliens. You know, we've been dealing with aliens in all of our cultures since the beginning. We just haven't recognized them as such. So coming to terms with that uh, became part of that sort of redef- redefinition of the idea of the other in science fiction. Oh, sure. It wasn't just monsters, it was people among us, it was ourselves. And I mean, it's something that Stephen Baxter has ex- explored at very great length in you know, his novels, you know, where he starts looking at, you know, whether other hominids are actually the origins of the idea of the other. The fact mm-hmm. that there are that there are other species of human that we encountered you know, during the lifetime of Homo sapiens, uh, and, and that that's what we're actually sort of looking at in, in a lot of these discussions. And he, he did it in a whole series of books. So yeah. Well, he did in the whole series of books, and it shows up again in evolution, obviously. It shows up. But it's, it's I mean, that's, that's like one of the, if there is a convention to what uh, Nick Ruddock in his very good book, Fire in the Stone, called uh, prehistoric fiction. I mean, he, had, he had some sort of clever, uh, shortened version of that. Um, the, the, most common, the most common theme in prehistoric fiction has been the encounter of the Cro-Magnon with the Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows it shows up in William Golding. It showed up in um, uh, Jean, Jean, Jean Owl's novels. It showed up in Stephen Baxter. It's, in other words, that idea showed up in most recently in, in Kim Stanley Robinson's Shaman. So there is that idea that maybe there's some ancestral memory of having coexisted on this planet with a species which was, by, all, by increasingly evident accounts, just about as capable as we were with toys, but they and, and tools, but different. So that's a possibility. Mm. But I think the other possibility, which is one that Russ and others raised, is that you know, men and women are alien to one another anyway. And the other theme that sort of reflects that is the notion which has been persistent in science fiction and, and, and in some and, and horror fiction, that children are completely alien beings to... Um, to humans and to adults. And the idea that goes back to stories like Bradbury's The Small Assassin, where babies just want to kill you. That's what they're really out to do. <laughs> kill the future. Kill the future, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in other words, there, there are a lot of forms of alienation in science fiction. Um, but um, the idea that we started out this discussion with, and which I think recurs again and again in Media Infinity, is that we're folding that idea into ourselves. There's a Madeleine Ashby story you have, which I think is a wonderfully sensitive story. And it's not the first one to talk about multiple iterations. You can dispose of your old body and get a new one. But she comes up with a rather poignant idea that you don't get to keep the memories of the old body when you get the new Yeah. And I don't know if I'd seen that before. But you do get to keep this, what she calls a shibboleth, which is a kind of small token of something. It could be a uh, a, a necklace or a figurine, or what, which which you carry from life to life, and that strikes me as just being a very humane and and heartbreaking story about how well we can have these new bodies, but we can't hold on to what we already have if we do that. Yeah, exactly. It's a terrific story, um, really and a, I mean, a, and a really interesting one. I mean, there's, there's a few ideas in there that I thought were were really interesting. Uh, some, one, on one or two occasions, I think the actual ideas more engaging than the story but overall I mean I, I'm really taken and I don't I, I won't spoil I'm really taken with the idea behind the John Barnes story I think mm-hmm. it's very I think it's very very powerful uh, as is the story you know, behind uh, Simon Ings's drones uh, which I think has a lot of contemporary interest and actually dovetails towards something that I'm quite interested in right now and that is that it seems to me there's a kind of almost bleak near futurism that British writers are more willing to engage with than American science fiction writers right now. I mean, I don't see an equivalent really to 
the David Hutchinson books coming out of the States at the moment. And the David Hutchinson... Uh, yeah, Europe in Autumn and uh, Europe at Midnight, which are really are sort of savvy, near-future, bleak political science fiction. I mean, it's still engaging and entertaining, but they're looking at fairly, a fairly dark set of options. And I see drones as being in that same kind of space, just as uh, Ings's novel Wolves was. Wolves was the other example of that. It's, 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 that's what I strike, it strikes me as being... Um, I mean, the, the stories in any collection or in any group of stories that you're looking at, like I know we're beginning to start thinking about the recommended reading list, there's some that strike you for, uh, for the cleverness of their ideas or the ingeniousness of their ideas, and I would agree with, uh, with you about the barn story. Inns is very good at getting a very gritty, lived-in sense of a believable future that doesn't that doesn't push you beyond what is not only credible but seems likely. Um, and 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 and, he, he, and and I think the Madeleine Ashbury story does that as well. But I think you're absolutely right about British writers somehow have a sense of uh, a future that is largely in place right now, but not entirely activated, if you know what I mean. Yeah. There was a story, for example, I mean, when Paul McCauley was back writing his near-future stories, and I'm not talking about his um, sort of super-violent murder stories, but uh, a novel like Whole Wide World, uh, which I looked at again because I was working on these lectures, and I thought, okay, when he wrote that, I don't think there were a million cameras focused on people in, in London, but there were, it was close to it. Yeah. He pretty much nailed the society that that it seems that that seems to have evolved only twenty years later, uh, and I think you're right. I don't think very many American writers have been satisfied with depicting that kind of incremental incremental change. I think American writers want a more dramatic change, or maybe it's fair to say American editors want American writers to have more dramatic change. Do you think an American science fictional future is more easy to satirize? I think it is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it always has been. I mean, America has, and I speak as a as a proud American. American, America has always taken pride in its ability to be a parody of itself. <laughs> yeah. And we have known this since Mark Twain. We have known it uh, certainly since Paul and Cornbluth, who were very uh, acute American satirists, and uh, and and we still get it with uh, with writers like James Morrow today. So. So there is a there is a sense of it, and and look at look at American politics. Now I know you've had some bizarre changes of prime minister in your own country, but let's face it: no country on earth, no rational, liberal, educated democracy on earth can produce the kind of political environment that the United States has right now. We are living in a parody of a future America. If Fred Pol, no, if Cyril Cornwallis were still alive, he would be chortling his head off at how wonderful we have created the world that he was afraid we might create. It certainly does seem like, like we're living in a demented version of something that Cornbluth and John Brunner would have come up with on a dark night over, you know, over a beer at a world, conv- a world con or something. Exactly. Uh, I mean, and, and it's very hard to, to, to work out exactly how that has come to, be, come to pass. But nonetheless, you're right, it has. And it's, it's very strange to try and work out. I mean, I was thinking, it's like, how do you then apply that, take that back to fiction? I mean, because you can't be more absurd and satirical than, than the real thing, you know? In fact, the real you problem know, with this... The, sorry, yeah. No, you, 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 you can't be more absurd and satirical. There are two ways of dealing with this potential reality when you're a science fiction writer. One is to write a horror story, which is... What Octavia Butler wrote, for example, in Parable of the Talents, the second of her parable novels that deals with a Christian fundamentalist fascist dystopia in the United States, and it's utterly terrifying. I, mean, I think it's an underread novel because people because people know it's part of an unfinished trilogy, and a lot of people have read Parable of the Talents. But she was foreseeing a world which is which is in 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 the control of people who now would like to control our our world, um, and by the same token. Uh, you're right. Brunner pretty much foresaw a, a society like this. I think, uh, to some extent, even going back to um, Anthony Burgess with yeah. Clockwork Orange, foresaw worlds like this. So, so the fact that this is something that's been imagined in science fiction and now looks like science fiction leaves me with with two completely 
contradictory feelings. One is that, yeah, sometimes science fiction got it right. You know, sometimes sometimes people behave absolutely as insanely as they do in Vonnegut novels. And the other part of me thinks, okay, science fiction got it right and it made no difference at all. All those warnings that they were giving us all those years had no effect on anybody at all. That seems just depressingly plausible, yes. I mean, what, what I also take away from it all is that we have a need for something else now. I mean, I, I tr- I've tried a couple of times to have a conversation with people about what science fiction should be for. And I remember, mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, we, I tried to have the conversation at uh, Brighton, no, sorry, London, in London, uh, on a panel with uh, Bob Silverberg and Stan Robinson and um, Joe Watton. And Bob really wouldn't engage with the subject at all. His view was at that point that it was stories to entertain. But I think that's that reduces it all and undercuts it all a bit too much. There are questions that science fiction can answer, and there's kind of, kinds of things science fiction can do. Now, you can sit, sit there and say it makes no difference, and that may well be true. But I think it is rewarding and interesting for people living in the world today to, to see those questions explored. They're worthwhile. Their questions worth exploring. Well, I think the difference is this. I think the difference has to do with, and I don't want to get into any contemporary controversial issues, but to some extent, when science fiction engaged those issues, it engaged them as a kind of attempt at a rationalistic literature. By which I mean, you could have um, a devoted humanist like Theodore Sturgeon talking to a devoted whatever he was like Robert A. Heinlein. You could have the ultra-rationalist Asimov in the same room having a cordial conversation with the ultra-romantic, poetic Bradbury. In other words, the different, the different, schemes, the, the, the different schemes for the future imagined by science fiction writers interacted with one another in, 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 in different ways. I don't think that happened. I don't think it's happened anymore. I think the same thing may have begun to happen in science fiction that has happened in politics in general, which is that uh, the quote-unquote humanistic wing no longer talks that much to the quote-unquote technological wing. Well, I think it's without getting into any internal science fiction political issues, because yes. I've no desire to do that. No. Um, it's certainly easy to see contemporary culture become radicalized. I mean, just across the board becoming radicalized. And this is what's happening, uh, from what I've been told, at a national level in U.S. politics. You know, you have a situation where in one party there's a group of people who now no longer have any commitment to the idea of government. They're no. there for radical reasons. And that's a new thing in American politics. You know, it used to be, and I've got, I mean, without going into bibs and bobs of it, you know, it used to be, and this is what we talk about in science fiction, it used to be you'd have people who'd, who, who would have different paths towards the same goal, if you like, and could see that even if you disagreed with somebody, they were reasonable people, that they were rational people, and that they were worth listening to. Now, it seems like the whole thing is based on undercutting everything else. That the I other person... Want... You know, this mm. is... The, and now I say this strictly, I'm only referring to you at a Republican v. Democrat level. Even here in Australia, we get Labour versus Liberal, which is a similar to Democrat yeah. v. Republican, all that kind of thing. Um, and maybe that, that that's broader as well. And, and, and maybe... And this is an interesting thing to explore. Maybe it's partly a, an artifact of social media and the internet that, in physically distancing people, but pra- but practically bringing them closer together, it allows you to uh, distance yourself from the emotional impact of the things you're doing and from considering that the people that you're interacting with as being uh, reasonable kind of human beings rather than just uh, long-distance constructs. Because it's my great belief that in all of these things, there is a lot of things that are said and done that would never be said or done face-to-face. That could very well be the case, and there are other complicating factors in the United States. There are structural factors, and the, the most extreme, um, really, and it, there's no other word for it, the most extreme anti-intellectual members of Congress are in districts where they're always going to get re-elected because they, they appeal literally to ignorance. Ignorance is marketable in a way that, that intelligence isn't. I don't think that's happened in science fiction yet. I don't think it's happened in our community. I think... I think we do have you know, evidence of, of fringe groups, as always. But I go back to the example, which is a story which um, Joe Haldeman has told more than once. Uh, and it's the reaction of Robert Heinlein to Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. 
And The Forever War is one of many, one of a small library of books that you can uh, amass that, that are, in a sense, responses to Starship Troopers. Sure. The philosophy, the, the, the combat scenes in Haldeman, of course, I reread both of these novels recently, and it's interesting. The combat scenes in Haldeman's novel are far more authentic than they are in, in Heinlein's. Heinlein was making them up. Um, I mean, there's an advantage of you know, 12 years in terms of technology. But my point is this. Um, the two of them could not have been further apart politically. But apparently, um, a Heinlein came to Joe's table at a Nebula Awards banquet or possibly a Hugo Awards banquet and told him how much he admired the novel, even though he didn't agree with it. And Joe more or less said something similar. We could get him to retell the story. But the point is, the two of them could not have been on more opposite sides of the political spectrum, but they had both written really good science fiction war novels, and they both recognized that. They both recognized that what science fiction can do isn't within the context of a political set of beliefs. Yeah, but how much of that exchange is actually something else? I mean, mean? okay, what year was Robert Heinlein born? 1907, right? Okay, you just looked that up. You did not know that. You looked that up. No, I knew that. Oh, come on. Sorry. <laughs> okay, what year was James Tipley born? Oh, hang on. It's 1914? Uh, I don't know. I thought it was 19... 1915. 1915. It's, it's a Tipley centenary. Go ahead and make your point. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway. Heinlein's born in 1907. He's a teenager in the 1920s, right? Uh, Joe's younger than that, but still... I don't know exactly when he's born, but I'm going to posit it sometime in the late 30s, you know, the, the mid, mid, mid to late 30s. How much of it is a couple... I don't think Joe's that old. I think Joe's a couple of years. Joe's probably 43, maybe. Pre-1950? Pre-1950, certainly. And was a teenager in the 60s. Even then. I think there was a cultural commitment to good manners. That was a factor. You know, it's just like you were raised to be polite and gracious and whatever else. And, I mean, Heinlein, even though I don't think he actually, you know, sort of fought for the United States, certainly went through Annapolis and was trained as a military man and all that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And I think there's all kinds of things to do with with that that probably control that particular thing. I, I certainly think our contemporary culture and our online culture is less committed to just plain good manners. It could be good manners. It could be something else. It could be that science fiction was more important to people at that era. In other words, the idea that both Heinlein and Haldeman, and for that matter, we could throw Harry Harrison into the mix. We could throw Brian. They recognized good science fiction when they saw it. And if the good science fiction worked out the details of the genre, of the kind of writing, the kind of disciplined imagination you needed, you could recognize that even if the point of the story wasn't one you agreed with. I think so, and I think you could also probably, because it was quite a small club at that time, I mean, you know, uh, Forever War comes out in 75, so they're probably having the conversation in 76. Um, Science fiction itself is smaller, it's pre-Star Wars, it hasn't sort of run across the globe to to the level it has in in contemporary media culture today. So, you know, there are all kinds of things that make that kind of exchange more likely and more possible, particularly since back in 1976, and I wasn't there, I was 12 years old here in Australia at the time. In 1976, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess you still felt like it was us against them. You know, there was those of us within the science fiction against the establishment, the literary establishment, whatever else. We were small and, you know, sort of... So, so it made it easier to have that sort of internal um, conversation. Whereas now culturally, I mean, just generally culturally, we've, you know... One of the most prescient books of the last decade is a minor novel that nobody particularly talks about uh, by Cory Doctorow, Eastern Standard Mm -hmm. Tribe, which discusses, as you'll recall, the idea that groups, uh, affinity groups form based on uh, the work that they're doing and that, that, that is irrespective of physical location or time of day, right? So you, you could be all linked up because it was U.S. Eastern Standard Time or something. Right. That kind of thing is an atomization of culture. It's large numbers of people falling into, into small, new, discrete groups and then setting themselves up 
opposed to that. Science fiction is atomized spectacularly. We talk about it again and again. And some of it is brilliant. I mean, it's the whole inclusion thing and the greater representation of women and minorities and all kinds of things, all to be applauded, good things. But it's also, to some degree, slightly characteristic of this kind of atomization that also allows for a very much us-and-them kind of interaction. And I think probably in 1976, that didn't exist. Well, the us-and-them configuration certainly existed in 1976 in the sense of science fiction versus the world. Nobody is going to take it seriously. People in science fiction might have believed in 1976 that a novel like The Forever War, or we could use other novels from the same uh, general mindset. We, you look at the number of writers from, from Joe Haldeman's The Forever War to Lucius Shepard's Life During Wartime, any number of things that science fiction people probably would think, these, these books should be up for National Book Awards. These books should be up for Pulitzers, and they have no chances at all. So the us against them, the cultural mainstream, was much more divorced from science fiction in 1976 than it is now. Now you can give. You may not get a science fiction writer winning uh, a Pulitzer Prize, but you might have a Michael Chabon winning a Hugo. True. To undercut my own proposition, because obviously we're making this up as we go along, it's not carefully scripted, and I haven't really thought about this in any detail. Do I miss the point? Uh, is there a greater history of schism than I'm allowing? I mean, now what I mean is, my, I was thinking about what you were saying. I was thinking, you know what? When I, we had, again, we had Stan Robinson earlier in the year to talk about Aurora. We talked about, very briefly, we touched on the subject of 1980s science fiction, which he referred to, as I recall it, as being a terrible decade. And one of them was, one of the reasons for that was, I believe, because there was a great schism between the uh, post-humanists, the, the post-modernists and the cyberpunks. And it was really mm -hmm. acrimonious and unpleasant, right? Mm -hmm. There was uh, something, I gather. Okay. And then if you step back 15, 20 years, you have the Campbellians versus the New Wave. But, I, but were the kind of schisms you see then, and is there a preceding one, were they as negative and as personal as modern era kind of conflicts seem to be? I mean, I got the impression that the 80s one was getting quite unpleasant, but, but I don't know that the new wave Campbellian one was. I, my sense of reading some of the American responses to the so-called new wave is that there were some... They were cranky. They were cranky, but not hostile in that sense. They were get off my lawn, you know. And then, and when the new wave sort of faded away, there was a lot of sort of ha ha. We 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 won. And if you go far enough back to the Futurians versus the God knows science fiction league from Hugo Grunsback, it's hardly worth talking about. These were. These were maladjusted teenagers who were mad at each other. <laughs> well, also, I guess, you know, a schism between 25 people which represent the entirety of... I mean, what, the 1939 Worldcon would fit in the back of a combi van, basically. Exactly. You know. the, 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 big, the Great Exclusion Act was a bunch of... A couple of teenage kids... <laughs> in the yes. It does begin to sound like the front seat versus the back seat. But exactly. See, so that kind of thing hard I will say, and I've, I've never said this on the podcast before, one of the things which fires this this path of reasoning for me is I'll never forget when some years ago, Robert Silverberg, who was a dear friend of mine, on who I value very highly, both as a person and as a, as a writer, and who I suspect I'm politically at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from, came to Perth and Western Australia as a guest of honour at a convention. Mm. And a whole bunch of people after that spec, to this very day in fact, will occasionally say to me how, what a negative opinion they formed of him. Really? Yes. And I, I'm not going to really detail what, how, beyond, or what that is, because I, I think it's, it was a misunderstanding. There was a, a basic misunderstanding between those science fiction fans and the era that Bob represents. This now 80-year-old man who is famous in science fiction for being poised, being flawlessly dressed, being somewhat debonair, and all, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm as well as being dry and witty and a little bit acerbic. Everything about how he socially presents himself was formed in a different era. It was formed in Manhattan in the 50s. 
And the people who, that he was encountering here really didn't get that. The pe- pe- I uh, that. And I, I think that's one of the schisms here with all of this. Um, I, it's, I mean, to some extent, to some extent, Bob chose to accept that demeanor because the, sure. the person was essentially growing up with in New York in the early 50s was Harlan Ellison, whose demeanor was almost exactly the opposite of Bob's. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was still an accepted demeanor. It was a role. There were roles that you assumed. Uh, there's uh, the, 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 the urbane, suave, uh, elder statesman that, uh, that Bob has become in science fiction is now a legend of Hugo ceremony. She can't escape it. I could see why some people uh, encountering him for the first time might have thought this is strangely arch. This is strangely performative in a way that we don't expect our writers to be anymore. Yeah, um, which it's but, not. But he's not the only one who was like that. If you look at any any writer, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to demean modern writers who certainly have interesting and volatile personalities, but writers in the 60s and 70s accepted roles. Harlan was the punk rebel, you know. You had... Um, Mike Resnick, who was the guy with sideburns, because somebody had to have the sideburns after Asimov was gone. <laughs> and Ed Silverberg was the urbane, witty guy. Uh, Barry Malsberg was a sour, cynical old uncle. I mean, everybody had a role to play in science fiction. <laughs> science fiction is far too diversified for that these days. Which is probably a good thing, but is that, you know... I, f- I feel we've wandered off into a strange corner. I'm not sure how we get back to our topic. I don't know how. We, we started off talking about uh, how people change in science fiction stories as opposed to yeah. uh, how they explore other worlds, and now we're off into... Well, well, certainly we're talking about, you know, I guess, what the evolution of the idea of the alien, of the other, and how science fiction engages with it and why that's changed. And I think some of the reasons for that we've, we have touched on. I mean, scientific change, the evolution of stories... Uh, our, our, our belief in the existence of aliens, our belief in our ability to travel to ever encounter aliens, all these things have impacted on it. Uh, There's another I, I, I'm, I'm, I will say, I'm not 100% convinced about your proposition that this story has been taken up by uh, paranormal supernatural fiction. I think that there's some truth in that, but I, I wonder whether um, we actually analyze the character of the other in those circumstances. One of the things that you did in a lot of science fiction encounter where we had aliens changing us is you looked at motivation and you looked at what the other was about, what, what it was. Uh, the kind of other you encounter in those supernatural stories that changes us physically tends to be implacable and unthinking. Oh, that may be true, but it's, if you go back to the classic science fiction, your body is being taken over by an alien treatment in both, in both the novel and, and, and the four movies that have been based on it, Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers, there's no, it, 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 it's implacable, but there's no apparent motivation behind it. Uh, it's, it's simply, uh, the, reason, the reason that The Body Snatchers was condemned by both uh, communists and anti-communists was because <laughs> you could read this as a metaphor of McCarthyism of, 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 of Americans being sort of seduced by this middle class conformity or you could read it as a metaphor of communism, of people being seduced by an alien mythology uh, and that idea I think is one that we've, we've kind of lost sight of, we've lost sight of the metaphorical value of that sort of thing um, and it's hard for me to think of a single science fiction story, uh, and I'm sure I'm wrong about this, or science fiction film, in which, a recent one, in which humans are overtaken and have their bodily forms changed by alien intelligences, as opposed to mechanical intelligence, or artificial intelligence, other versions of ourselves. Did it kind of become um, a discredited media trope after things like V? Well, it may be that that's what happened. It may be that uh, it's, it started its long descent into degradation with, uh, with Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers in 1954, or whenever that came out. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that The Body Snatchers was remade as a movie as recently as four or five years ago, I think, with Nicole Kidman. Uh, so it's an idea that won't die. Yeah. Uh, the metaphorical power of the idea certainly outweighs any science fictional validity it has. My only point was that 
if you if you, if you want to get changed into something different, something mindless, something that's nothing but appetite, you've got to become a zombie or you've got to become a vampire because <laughs> the aliens aren't going to help you out. We're nearly at the end of our hour, and we're not going to resolve this. So oh, I'm going to switch around. I mean, uh, because I'm going to now re- re- absolutely relentlessly plug meeting infinity my anthology will be in stores in the first week of december you can pre-order it now and i think it's really quite a decent book i'm pretty proud of it i'm currently working on the fifth book in the series uh bridging yeah yeah bridging bridging infinity you want to tell us what the name of that one's going to be it's basically analyzing the idea of superstructures and super engineering projects in science fiction big dumb objects no, done big dumb objects. I did big dumb objects in godlike godlike machines. This is everything. From, I mean, one of the, 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 once upon a time there was a classic story. I, I mean, I realize that half of our listeners, at least, are in the, in the United States, and obviously our listeners are smarter and better informed than everybody else's listeners. So this won't come as any surprise to them. But once upon a time there was a crazy plan to run a canal the length of the, the West Australian border. So that would run, run it from like what, the South China Sea, 2,000, 3,000 kilometers south to the, is it the, not the Indian Ocean, the Southern Ocean. Uh-huh. Right? So you would have then a wide water body running the entire length. And it was a, just a mad super engineering project. The Russians were infamous for coming up with this stuff in the 50s. You know, we'll, you know, we'll re- change the way the rivers flow. We'll build an inland sea. Uh, and science fiction also has variants of it, whether it be building Dyson spheres, which is a big dumb object, or some other massive. Hmm? Yeah, right. A transatlantic, a transatlantic tunnel. tunnel. Hurrah! Which, I mean, Ken Liu was exploring not a year or two ago in a story that got a lot of play and will probably be in his collection next year. Right. So that's what Bridging Infinity is about. It's one of two books I'm working on at the moment. Meeting Infinity first. Bridging Infinity next year, and then I'm work- just getting ready to pitch the next batch of Infinity-ness. But before I do, and I've picked this up for myself, tell me, Gary, you've been working, you've been reading, you've been watching, you've been thinking. What have you liked this week that we can le- leave our listeners to take away as something they might want to look, f- look out for? I'm... The, okay, the last novel I finished, um, which is one which we will... I've, undoubtedly addressed when we are doing one of our podcasts from the World Fantasy Convention in a couple of weeks, was Charlie Jane Anders's All the Birds in the Sky, which is, I think, fascinating in a number of ways. I think part of it is a terrific young adult novel. Part of it is a kind of visionary science fiction slash fantasy novel. It, 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 it's, it's, I don't want to say too much about it because I think we will get into it later. I ended up being very satisfied by it even though there was a point at which I thought, this is uh, trying to do more things than it started out trying to do, and maybe it's going to get away with them or not. I'm going to leave that as it is. But by and large, it's it's inventive, and it's one of the things that I think I'll remember a few months from now. One of the things I will tell you now about um, having read Meeting Infinity, which is one of the things that in an ideal world, as a reviewer, I would do this. I would read a bunch of stories or a bunch of books and give myself two weeks or a month or two months and then see which ones I can recall without having to go back and look at the book. Sure. I actually did finish Meeting Infinity a couple of weeks ago, so I could do that a little bit with your collection. Uh, There are novels which at the time I read them, I think, are not terribly successful, and then six months later I realize, okay, that really worked better than I thought it did. Uh, I think the problem at this time of the year, the, you know, the best of the year time of the end of the year, uh, is you begin to lose track of exactly when something came out. Particularly if it was like a cusp. I mean, we were talking about best collections mm-hmm. of the year. And you know, you'd lost track of one of them, which you thought had been the preceding year. And I have mm-hmm. this suspicion that when people sit down to think about it, Galapagos Regained by Jim Morrow, for example, is a book that will feel like it may have been a 2014 book, even though it's a January 2015 book. Well, that's the problem with January 2015 books, especially if you're a reviewer. The other one we were talking about was Neil Gaiman's Trigger Warning, which was early 2015. Yeah. But I remember reading it sometime last fall. Yeah. So there is always that moment where you have to hesitate and think, wait a minute, was that this year or was that last year? Uh, but the point I was making is that when I go back and look at and this happens to me every time I am asked to do this locus recommended reading thing, is there are the things that I, I know I ought to recommend because they're important, 
they're the things that stand out in memory. And they're things, starting right now, the, without giving a moment's thought to it, this is completely off the top of my head, things that jump out in memory from my last year's reviewing include Paolo Bajagalubi's The Water Knife and yep. Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora. Which we've talked about exce- ex- incessantly. Here. Talked and I'm sure there are more, but those, those are ones that... Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would throw in Luna by Ian MacDonald. And Luna by Ian MacDonald. I would throw so in recent. The House of Shattered Wings by, Z- by Elliot de Bodard and Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho would come to mind. And there's, there's a batch of others. The, reason, the only reason I didn't mention the last three novels you mentioned is because there's not enough distance now for me to know what I'm going to think about them in three or four yeah. months. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. I don't get it. I haven't read any novels this, this week. I've been reading a lot of short fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, catching up on a bit of TV. I just watched about 12 episodes of The Blacklist in my spare time. And I read a couple of comic books, Gary, which I am going to recommend. I, I don't read a lot of graphic novels or, or comics, but these will feature strongly in my, in, in my you know, look back at the year, I think. This past week we saw Scotty Young, who you would, may not have heard of before, but who did some wonderful adaptations. This is how, how I know of him. He did some wonderful graphic novel adaptations of Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz stories. But he's just done his first uh, owner-creator you know, owner book, a thing called I Hate Fairyland, mm-hmm. a, about a eight-year-old girl in the, you know, in the first couple of pages of it f- basically falls through her bedroom floor into fairyland. Mm. And she's surrounded by all sorts of sweetness and light. On her way down, she's terrified she's going to die because she's falling. She, she appears to be horribly injured when she lands but recovers fairly quickly. Because she just crashes into the floor in, in Fairyland, and then mm. we immediately pick up twenty-seven years later, where oh. she where she's voyaging around Fairyland. She still is in, the, in an eight-year-old girl's body, and she hates it. She's angry and she's foul-mouthed and she's violent and very funny. Hmm. I mean, it's just terrific stuff. I cannot wait for more of it. Um, and th- so that's Scotty Young's I Hate Fairyland, and Brian Vaughn, who really is the gold standard of comics creators, having created Why the Last Man, having created, I think it was Runaways, having created, uh, was it, uh, oh gosh, the name of it, skip my mind, but also Saga, having created Saga, which was, has been out for the heroes, has a brand new series out called Paper Girls, which is set in, I think, the American Midwest in the mid-1980s. About a group of uh, young girls who have paper routes who all go out one morning to deliver the newspapers and encounter something strange that happens to them as a group. Almost a bit oh. Stephen Kingian to sort of construction as an idea. But, but not in manifestation. Really engaging. Great art. Great story. Mm-hmm. Obviously just at first issues. Uh, so strongly recommend those. Love those. And also been continuing to read Greg Rucker's Lazarus, which is a dystopian science fiction series it's up to about its 20th issue i think and it's one of the best mm-hmm. things i've read the last couple of years and in amongst that and i'm not going to talk about these because one one thing we're out of time but also because eh, i'll be talking about enough i have just compiled the first rough cut of a locust recommended reading list i've been reading short stories not long long novellas because anything over thirty thousand words really doesn't confront my year's bests but right. certainly a lot of stuff, reading Sam J. Miller, who's a terrific new science fiction writer who's going to have a new writer. His first novel will come out next year, Gary, and if it is as good as his short fiction, he's been up for the nebula or whatever, it will be something special. A um, whole bunch of stuff that I've been reading. Uh, just read new Greg Egan novella. Lots of stuff that, that I think we will see in in the coming months as you know, years best begin to come, come out, as we do our recommended reading. As we move into what may be our first ever, I will now pr- preview this briefly, Gary, our first ever best of the year run-up on the podcast. We can probably do that. We'll be talking to some friends of the podcast and new, new people about stuff that they recommend, probably after World Fantasy uh, in, in November and early December. I think it would be a very interesting thing to our listeners. It would be fascinating to me because, as you know, I, outside of an occasional original anthology such as Meeting Infinity... Uh, or a sto- an anthology, a, a collection that has original stories in it, such as China Miebel's Three Moments of Explosion. I don't read the magazines. I don't keep yeah. up with short fiction. I depend on editors like you to tell me what I should yeah. have read last. So, we shall do that. But I think, we Gary, we, we, we've done our hour. We, we, we've been here in the, in the Gershwin room, such as it is. 
Yes, and there are people pounding on the door saying your time is up. Well, you know, I'd always like to think that the, the Gershwin Room is a kind of a cocktail lounge where I could sit there and sip whiskey and listen to piano jazz in the background, but in reality it seems to be a, a spare bedroom converted into an office in Perth. You reckon we could get a convention to create a movie, like a set for us sometime when, we're do, when we do a live podcast? At some point I will show you videos or photographs of the backdrops, eight enormous backdrops, <laughs> the lectures I did in Virginia, which in, in, in a giant TV studio with 20-foot ceilings, they didn't look that big. I can't even get them on my wall. They're taller than my walls are. Uh, well, when, when you're a, get, a Worldcon guest of honor, Gary, that they can display them then in, in the dealer's room. Then. It's one of those things. What do you do with these things? I need to rent a barn. I need a barn. <laughs> and I guess we should also say uh, we are now on the fast track from basically now, at least in my world, to uh, World Fantasy in Saratoga Springs. Yes. It's three weeks away, which is no time at all. It'll disappear in a fraction of a second. We, are al- we already can say definitely that we are doing a, at least one live podcast at World Fantasy. At least one live in front of an audience and at least one or two others that yeah. probably may or may not be in front of them. Yeah, but I think it's 10 o'clock Friday morning. We will be talking mm-hmm. to the great Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough and the wonderful Charlie Jane Andrews about all matters mm-hmm. fantastical and whatever else about their books and their work and life and, I don't know, probably cheese fondue recipes, something. And we hope that people will dig themselves out of bed to come and join us at 10 o'clock in the morning. And if you're listening from further afield and cannot be in Saratoga, that conversation will come to you several weeks later. Yes. But it will be just as interesting several weeks later as it was at the time. Well, you got to hope. Anyway, until then, I think we should wind up. We should wind up. Okay. Until then, this is the Cood Street Podcast, and we will see you or hear you or you will hear us in about a week in about a week for episode 255 till then talk to you next week Gary you too